the word of God from Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is, the word, this is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you would remain standing just for another moment longer as we pray and ask the Lord to bless this time that we spend hearing his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do give us your word. Lord, may it be to us a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please take a seat. So some of you may be just arriving and thinking, wait, where's the second song? Like I, I, I beat the second song. Well, we've had to um, abbreviate our service, but we still have a lot of things that we want to do in this service. And we wanted to um, accommodate both having our service and all the rich elements of it while also having our congregational meeting. And it's a congregational meeting that we have in the fall where we are able to celebrate all that we did in the past ministry year and some of our hopes for this coming ministry year. Ministry year is sort of like a fiscal year. It goes from September to August. And um, so we're just excited to share that good news with all of you. And we're excited to be able to celebrate the many different things we're gonna be doing. Like after the sermon, we're gonna be receiving new members. We'll have a baptism, we'll have the Lord's Supper. So we'll be playing the hits. It'll just be a shorter concert, if that makes sense. Um, by the way, my name is Jason Walsh. I'm the associate pastor here at Denver Presbyterian Church. If I've not already had the pleasure to meet you, I would love to, to get that opportunity sometime. Um, you'll hear my voice a lot today, but not a lot during this sermon. I'm going to keep this as brief as possible. We have just started a series of sermons in the book in your Bible that's at the end before the maps, and it is the book of Revelation. It is the Revelation of Jesus to St. John, to John, the beloved disciple, the one who was there on Patmos. He had been basically sent away, kept away from culture so that he could no longer be this agitator who refused to bow the knee to the emperor. He was there and received this revelation. Jesus showed him himself and revealed himself and what he was about and he had some things to share. And so we're going to dive right in. This passage that we heard Sarah read is about 
the, it's the first in a series of messages that Jesus has for different churches in the area. And those messages, some people even call them letters, but they are these messages, these intentional communications to a variety of churches to let them know, okay, here's what's good and here's what needs to change. If it helps you to think of it this way, it's, it's similar to if a CEO in a modern-day company came to each of his managers to do a SWOT analysis. Have you ever heard of that, SWOT analysis? It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Jesus comes to each of these churches and he says, all right, church, this is who you are. I see that you're good at this, but here's something to work on. And this is the first of those messages, and the church in Ephesus, I think you're going to find, as I studied and prepared for this, it's uncomfortably familiar sounding, is what I will say. It made me feel self-conscious as I was reading about it, and this is something that was written thousands of years ago. So let's dive right in. As we see it, um, you know, Jesus announces you know, who he is talking to. And right there at the beginning of the second chapter, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's Jesus announcing, here's who I'm talking to, the church in Ephesus. You might recognize it because Paul went there and Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. And that's what we call the New Testament book of Ephesians. And he's announcing himself. I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. And the lampstands are really these sources of God's light in the world. And Jesus is saying, like, I'm the one who walks among that. Like, where the light is, that's where I am. And you start to see that in other writings of John, right? That to walk in the light as he is in the light, it's one of those themes that is just going to keep coming up. But Jesus is announcing himself and he says, starting in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In these two verses, we're getting a picture of this church in Ephesus. And that picture is of a church that is tirelessly committed to truth. They don't give up when it comes to having the real story, the real deal. They really want to know, this is true. I can verify this. So they had this tremendous rigor for the truth and for the reputation of Jesus. As he says, for my name's sake... And that sounds great, right? That sounds great. In fact, that's kind of what we try to put out there within our own tradition as what we're about. We're about the truth. You know, we are we're Protestant. We're Reformed. We're Presbyterian. We're trying to get this across. That, like, we really care about the truth. And so it's good. Like, Jesus is saying, good job. And I read that, and I'm like, hey, that's what we try to do. So, yay, good job. And the Ephesian church also has zero tolerance for evil. Zero tolerance for evil. Like when it says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
cannot bear with is not like, this is testing my patience. It's, no, absolutely not. We are not going to deal with evil. And that's also like, that feels like a fairly low bar for a church, right? We don't tolerate evil. Good, check. But also, we feel the need for that, don't we? We hear the stories, we see the news items, we hear the, the narratives that our friends come to us with where they've experienced evil in the church, where nobody did much about it. And so the Ephesian church, they're, they're doing some things right. And he says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. That they're not giving up in this struggle to maintain their purity, even to the point of when people come to them, as he says in verse 2, you've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not. Like, what does that even mean? Well, there was something that happened in the early church. The apostles, the ones who were sent out, that's how you get the word apostle. It's sort of sent one. Those who were sent out by Jesus were the ones to initially spread the good news throughout the known world. And as apostles, they had authority. You know, it's like, well, how do you know that's what Jesus said? It's like, I heard him every day for three years say this. Trust me, I know. It was apostolic authority, right? They knew what they were talking about. Well, then there were some who showed up to the church later on, and they would say, yeah, I'm an apostle, and you should listen to me the way you listen to them. But what the Ephesian church did is they tested it. They said, oh, really? Well, then what is Jesus' take on how we are to keep the law? What is Jesus' thing about serving others? They tested it, and they actually identified, hey, some of these are claiming to be apostles, but they're not really apostles. And in that case, you know, we may even think of it in our own contemporary terms as when somebody claims apostleship, it's sometimes when somebody comes into the church or church circles or has hot takes on social media from a church perspective, and sometimes they're making a grab for power or influence, or maybe they're claiming to be above critique. You can't question me in this because I'm an apostle or because I've got the facts or I know my stuff. Really, we have, we have to look out for that. We have to look out for that because if there are unexplained assumptions, hyperbolic language where it's just blown all out of proportion, maybe a naive realism where it claims its own conclusions are obvious if you have the right data or perspective, if somebody comes to us that way, we need to be cautious. We need to test it. And what kind of test should we use? Well, it's sort of what the Bereans did. Remember when the Bereans were applauded? It's like, hey, you check what's being taught here against the scriptures, and that's good. It's a simple practice that I have in place with a Bible study that I'm in, where everyone around the table can ask the question, where do you see that in the text? Where do you see that in the scriptures? Because if something doesn't sound right, we should dig, we should mash at it, we should, we should try and pull on that thread and see, 
Is this really what the Bible teaches? Is this really what Jesus was about? Or is this somebody who has a persuasive way of speaking or is very articulate or just very commanding in the way they present it? And we're just kind of rolling over for it because, well, it sounds right. He sounds like a leader. She sounds authoritative. But see, the Ephesians weren't falling for that. And Jesus is like, that's great, good job. But then, but then, there is the turn, right? In verse 4, you hear Jesus say this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What Jesus is confronting there is that they let their love for God and their love for each other grow cold. They love their truth passionately, but they're neglecting the passion of their first love. The way they were loving God and one another when, when the gospel was new to them, when the world was new because they knew forgiveness and acceptance, that they knew what it was like to really trust God and be freed from all the burdensome heaviness of the weight of our sin. And when that happens, and many of you have experienced this and you know this feeling like you're just exuberant. And what Jesus is saying is like, don't lose that. Don't lose that love for me and for others. But what's apparent is that they have come to love being right above loving well. I mean, Paul, like, let's, let's, let's not get it twisted. Like, the Ephesian church had actually done really well. Paul commends them at one point, saying, for this reason, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. There was a time when they had it right. But Jesus is saying he's not going to tolerate a cold orthodoxy. He will remove the light, their lampstand, from this people in this place if they don't get back to what they really ought to be all about. See, the reality is some of us may think that abandoning the truth is the main way a church can fail. And that does happen. When the gospel is abandoned because its message of redemptive sacrifice might offend sensibilities or there are certain sins that just can't be given up. And abandoning the truth can make a church fail, but it's not the only way a church can fail. A church can fail when a church simply neglects to love God and love one another. Sometimes a church goes south, gets off track because they abandon orthodoxy, right beliefs. But Jesus, in confronting the church at Ephesus, he's like, you've got the right beliefs, but you don't have the right love. You don't have the right practices associated with loving people well. You've abandoned that. It's a failure of orthopraxy, right practice. And so, Jesus gives them a solution. Repent. Turn from that cold orthodoxy into a vibrant combination of right beliefs and right practices, worshiping our God with all of our lives in daily conversation with him through prayer and scripture. 
and loving him by spending our time and attention in his presence and by loving our fellow believers, by welcoming, building up, and guiding one another in mutual love. This will be a daily repenting, a lifestyle of constantly turning back to God. That's, this is where these similarities make me uncomfortable. Because being in a tradition where we want to make sure we're faithful to the scriptures, we want to make sure our theology is right, we want to make sure that we're doing it right, we're so hung up on church government going well, we put it in our name. That's why it's so hard to spell. Presbyterian? I mean, come on. It's almost as hard to spell correctly as Baptist, right? And yet, in being hung up on those things, which are good things to be hung up on, it can get cold. We can affirm each other's rightness, but not really love one another well. Love one another well enough to come alongside and say, it looks like you're really hurting. Can I walk with you in this? And so a way for us to check that on ourselves is when we're with somebody who's struggling, what's our first move? Is it to correct or to come alongside? Is it to critique or to show compassion? It doesn't mean we abandon one or the other. Jesus is saying, yes, be both. Be committed to the truth and to love because that is what you're called to be in the world as you represent me. And that is the beauty of the end of this passage. Verses 6 and 7 say this, Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the first obvious question is, um, what is a Nicolaitan? And why does Jesus hate what they do? It's not altogether clear who the Nicolaitans were, what their whole thing was, but the context indicates that they were practicing something called syncretism. And that's where you take belief in God and mix it with other beliefs that are readily available. You take the gospel of Jesus and you add in maybe a little bit of animism or some pagan idol worship or things like that. What would it look like today? It would be like combining our allegiance to Christ with other incompatible allegiances, like swearing by the name of another god in order to get a guild membership or to be accepted. And you can think of how this plays out in a variety of ways, but basically it was a group of people who said, yeah, that's fine, just add it in. Yeah, the more the merrier. Just add in those other incompatible beliefs. It'll all sort out. It'll all come out in the wash. You know, it's, it's the lived-out experience of the coexist bumper sticker, Right? And in that way, the Nicolaitans wanted to have it all. They want 
the benefits of knowing Jesus, but they want the benefits of serving these other idols, of making promises on these pagan gods. They wanted the benefit of all of it, but ultimately they get none of it because it's a false faith. It's a compromised devotion. It's giving themselves wholeheartedly to something other than God. And if we remember right, that's, that's the violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's really a question that Jesus puts into the conversation in order to help the church in Ephesus to realize how off track they have gotten. You know, you would think they would get the message by, hey, I'll just take my light out of here. But Jesus is mentioning the Nicolaitans because it helps them understand that there's something for them in that rebuke. Hey, you've got this right. You're not doing what they're doing. But what you're doing is not altogether different. Jesus is basically asking, do you get it? And so we need to ask, do we get it? Because he follows up this, this comment on the Nicolaitans, and he says a phrase that he used in his teachings time and again, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you're able, tune in. He's giving the example of those who claim to have a place in heaven yet live like hell in the context of people who are devoted to being right but they might be doing something very similar, a loveless, cold practice. And in that way, the Ephesian church is in its own way living like hell because they aren't really loving God. They aren't really loving one another. They're loving being right. And if there ever was a signature sin for someone of my training and my tradition, it's that I love being right. And sometimes that's meant I've said things in ways that weren't caring, compassionate, or even listening well. But the reality is, Jesus has called me to care about the right things and being right, but he also has called me to love others the way he loved me. How did he love me? He gave himself completely up to win me back. That's how much he loved me. He took my sin on himself and died because he loves me. He experienced a separation from the Father that was entirely not in his nature and was terrifying and awful, and he did it for me. And if he loves me that much, then I can bear with someone who has a hard story for a long time before I start saying, well, you know, on this point of doctrine, you probably need to uh, tweak it a little bit. That's maybe a, that, that's maybe a uh, several months down the line conversation, depending on the person. And that's what Jesus is calling out to that church in Ephesus. 
And the reason it's included in this, this revelation that went to everybody is because Jesus wants everybody to hear it. Sure, it's specific to that Ephesian church, but we all need this reminder. We all need this reminder that the way we live out our faith begins with our love for God and our love for our fellow believers. And then beyond that, for our fellow human beings. And if we aren't getting that right, then it doesn't matter how precise and how many levels down we've got our theology right and our teaching on point. And that is why it's so refreshing that Jesus said, just turn away, turn, turn around from that, repent. And that's what repentance is. It's just turning back from our way of doing stuff and just turning back to his way of doing stuff. And that's what he invites us to do. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word that leads us Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what this means for us right here, right now, today. Lord, give us, give us that capacity to not just believe the right things, but to love well. And Lord, help us, help us to consistently see your light shining in our midst. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.